0: Hello, this is the Barton podcast. Barton stands for the Black, African and Asian Therapy Network. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a race perspective. My name is Eugene Ellis. Over the next couple of episodes, I will be presenting talks that were given at the Barton Spring Seminar series entitled Therapeutic Practice That Speaks Across Cultures. You can subscribe to SoundCloud, where these podcasts are hosted, or you can subscribe to iTunes or another podcast catcher of your choice and get the episodes when they become available. Or we can let you know through the email list, which you can sign up to on the Barton website. Dr Aisha Mackenzie-Mavinga presented the first of these five seminars. She talked about working with the hidden and voiced impact of racism in therapeutic relationships, especially in supervision, and touched on important themes in her book that relate to working in this area. Her book is called The Challenge of Racism in Therapeutic Practice. She challenges us through her work and through this talk to give voice to the psychological impact that race has on individuals and introduces ideas which challenge the silence. Here, then, is Dr Aisha Mackenzie-Mivinga.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So, good evening. Greetings. Akwaba. Shalom. Kaibo. Assalamu alaikum. Namaste. Lihao. Benvenitu. Ciao. Bon nui. Hola. Gudanach. Blessings. Bonus notches. Can anyone add to those greetings? Akabo. Akabo. Thank you. That's Yoruba. Yoruba. Mm -hmm. Jambo. Jambo. So first I want to thank Eugene for uh, providing this opportunity uh, for us to explore and examine the theme of the challenge of racism in therapeutic practice. I'm happy to be here with you this evening sharing this theme, my experience as a trainee and my experience as a lecturer, and hearing over and over again students saying, well, okay, racism is there, but I'm scared, or I feel like I might get blamed, or I feel like I'm going mad, and how do we work with it? How do we address it? So that was how it all started, and are there any books telling us how we can address this? And so that was the idea rooted in the work, the research work that I'd done, and then carrying it on into the second book, which talks more about action, taking action, what we can do, and Um, looking at this in the field of therapy plus supervision, so that everywhere we're supported. So uh, I'm currently living in a predominantly black and Asian community, which is Trinidad and Tobago. So I only come here a few months every year now, as I'm supposed to be a retired person, but that's a difficult one. And in that community where I live most of my life, you feel a sense of community because people talk to you on the street, You know, they don't know you, they acknowledge you. People look out, they know what's going on, they know where you live. I don't necessarily see that as nosy. It can feel intrusive, but there's a sense of people watching over over others. And caring, and families being, like the whole island being a family in a way. And the, the, the diversity appears mainly in different spiritual denominations, and also different shades, different skin shades. And there are also challenges of literacy, sexism, homophobia, sexual abuse, intercultural, prejudice and shadism, as I mentioned, to name but a few. And often I'm the only silver-haired, light-skinned, high-tone, as they call me, person in the room. So I, I have an experience there of being in a minority and having certain stereotypes placed on me. So it's in my face, I deal with it as it comes. But there's also a lot of sharing and laughter, a lot of praying, um, plenty of gossip, plenty of humiliation, scapegoating and shame, upholding a legacy of slavery and indentured labor rooted in those islands, the Caribbean islands. I'm living in Tobago, which is one of the first uh, islands where slaves were dumped after slavery. So Indians and Chinese were brought to to the islands and the the resentment that happened at that point still festering in those islands and many of the Caribbean islands. But I'm learning to be humble in the face of diversity and I'm learning about how naivety and powerlessness can exacerbate silence because today we're going to um, be exploring the hidden and voiced impact of racism. And I'm learning about how to use nature, the forest and the ocean to heal. (coughs) Anytime there's something wrong with me and I ask a local person, they say, go and get in the ocean, go to the ocean or drink some bush tea, drink this, drink that, you know. And it's working, I I feel fine, you know, You have to do without Western medicine to a certain extent because it's in very short supply there, thank the Lord. So many people use natural remedies and the nature around them. So I'm also learning, most of all, how to connect and nourish my self-esteem and just be totally in love with nature and the island and the community, even though some of it isn't so nice. So I want this evening to be a dialogue between us, and I want you to notice your self-dialogue, dialogue with yourself, and dialogue about how you experience the material and how you experience each other, because as soon as there's a voice, something happens to the listeners. But please be aware of intellectual copyright, because what I'm sharing with you is mainly from my experience, my clients and supervisees, uh, my research and very little from traditional uh, theories even though I drawn on them and integrated them into my research documents because I had to otherwise I wouldn't pass I had to have something there that to draw on to say well this could be used for this and it's true it can so you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater you work with what you have but I myself also continue to struggle with this concern the challenge of racism because we often think that it's a reoccurring situation. But really, it's a re-traumatising situation because it's very much rooted in the past and it goes on and on and on. And you can see that through the recent problems that have arisen with the Windrush issue, you know, with antisemitism, with black and black killings on the street. But I want this evening just to consider with you some frameworks for understanding and working with this issue. And when you hear me use the term black, I see it as a, as a political term, a political term that's evoked by racism. And it doesn't really apply to an individual's identity, <coughs> although some of us have decided to take it on. It doesn't apply unless we decide that we want to be identified as black and black and good and black and beautiful, I hope, rather than the negative way that it's been used. It does not define an African, an Asian, a person from the Caribbean. It merely contextualizes the discourse of racism. And a friend in uh, uh, Trinidad said to me once, well, you're not black until you're African. So the different versions (coughs) and journeys around this term black. In 1994, when I was working at the African Caribbean Mental Health Association, I discovered there was a huge gap in the field of psychotherapy and counselling, a gaping hole in literature and training and some difficulty in addressing the impact of racism on therapists, supervisors, clients and service users. The impact of racism in a historical, personal and intergenerational context. Um, this question came from a client who gave me permission to use it in my second book and she says this is after say a year 18 months of therapy when will i be able to live my life without having to think about being black and it's an ongoing question for many people of color who have experienced racism and realise that the colour of their skin means that they, they can see it everywhere. Generally, they experience it everywhere, once you become aware. So she came to me because she wanted guidance, as was concerned about the impact that racism was having on her. Going way back to the history of being raised somewhere in Essex, that was a predominantly white community, and where her parents worked very hard not to notice, but to make their black children behave as though they were fitting in. And they did to a certain extent using whatever resources they had. But as an adult, she realized that she was still being impacted and very conscious of herself as a black woman and not wanting to live her whole life being so conscious of being black and so conscious of racism all the time and the effect that it was having on her self-esteem. She'd harbored a lot of doubt about her potential as a professional person and her therapeutic work was rooted in her spirituality. She feared being stereotyped and excluded in the caring professions and one of the main reasons she feared being excluded and stereotyped was because She felt that she was a strong black woman, that she would be stereotyped for that reason, and she had dreadlocks, um, and that she would also be stereotyped and excluded because her way of working was deeply rooted in her spirituality. There's another kind of racism that I mention, and that's everyday racism. The kind of racism where you get called names on the street, where you do something and you realize that it's happening to you because you might be the person who's the black person in the group, but well, I'll give an example for myself where, um, when I was working and teaching at Goldsmiths and I went into the staff area where you can do photocopying and one of the white tutors came in and said, um, students are not allowed to use this photocopier. So I said, well, who are you? And she said, I'm so, and so, and so, and so, a lecturer, and I said, well, you haven't asked me who I am. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's everyday racism Mm -hmm. and, sorry?
0: Microaggression.
1: Microaggression, but I'm specifically pinpointing racism here, yeah. That happened numerous times, you know, I'd be teaching a class and someone would open the door and walk in, look over my head, where's the tutor? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's there every day in your work, in your life. And I'm sure if I asked everyone in this room, they could mention an incident of everyday racism. This um, this woman was running a cafe in a village in the UK and she noticed that she was experiencing racism as the cafe owner. People were walking in and went, once they saw her, they were walking out. And um, not all of them, but some of them. And so she decided, and this was in the Metro, I think. The oh, the Daily Express. So some of you have seen it. Yeah. Oh, it says it. You're just clearer than mine. Thank you. Yeah. So, so no, it just says, attention, everyone beware, be aware. I am a black woman and always will be. If you're allergic to black people don't come in (laughs) I thought this was really humorous and powerful and this is her way of coping but if you prefer quality wholesome meals in a pleasant and clean environment come in I don't bite thanks (laughs) that was very bold of her and and what it done was it also attracted people into the cafe because they wanted to meet her and see, you know, this courageous black woman who decided she was gonna just be more out rather than be squashed by the racism that she was experiencing. But well, my question to you is how would you work with these dilemmas? You know, the question of when will I be able to live my life without having to think about being black and everyday racism that many of us just swallow down because we have to get on with our lives and take it somewhere hopefully in the end but there's so much of it that you can't take it all so my question is you know what training and what your emotional responses to that question and what training and experience do we have to support clients bringing some of these issues Swallowing it down means we are creating layers of internalised racism, as with internalised sexism, internalised homophobia, etc. And quite often, I've found with clients who, uh, black clients who've come to me and come initially because they have felt difficulty in their relationship or in their work, uh, eventually they've been able to become aware that they swallow down a lot of racism that's added to the pain of whatever it is they're bringing. And sometimes, I think someone mentioned, you feel like people are perhaps looking at you as though you have a chip on your shoulder, mm-hmm. if you mention anything or try to challenge it. Um, and sometimes there's a feeling of, is it just me? And that can go on for so long that you could feel like you're cracking up if you're not getting enough support so many people who have experienced racism like other oppressions have experienced these oppressions since a very early age and so i really feel that the history of the impact of racism is just as important as the family history of clients that we're working with how many of us ask for that history when did you first experience racism At what age were you? What was it like? Who was there to support you? How did you manage it throughout your life? Do we ever ask those questions? Do we feel we can ask those questions? right, moving on. Well, some therapists work through their own experiences and impact of racism, giving them greater confidence to work with clients in these areas and ask these questions and work with them. But others fear the consequences of being with clients in this process and during their emergence from the impact of racism because it's a very painful process and often it evokes a lot of pain in the therapist. Therefore, if we have a supervisor who has also been doing this work, we would then feel more supported. Some people fear the client's rage about the injustice of racism. And there's a lot of rage about. One of my friends said, 300 years of rage. She says to people, don't upset me because I've got 300 years of rage. (laughs) I think that's a nice word of putting in. But hidden, inactive voices about racism create collusion with racism. Even though we may not be aware of this and we may not agree with this. One important thing here is to consider that um, therapists and supervisors paying attention to to racism is important Um, and taking some kind of action to assist clients to process their hurts about racism rather than just being person centred quite often some people say, well, the client hasn't raised it. So what? how would, you know, I can't really say anything. It's, a, it's not the client's agenda. But if you know it's there, then working on it in your supervision means that you're actually holding it until the client feels it's safe enough to work on it. And they will at some point. This is the same client who later on as a professional, was still feeling quite dismayed. She said she was tired and sad because the issue of racism is still not being fully addressed in training. And uh, can anybody corroborate that? Hands, please? Well, it's nice to see that there, it's not the whole room, but training establishments are still not really working specifically with the impact of racism in a way that is less fearsome, if you like. Um, And trainees are being told that racism no longer exists in Europe. Now, we know, you know, all the outing, the recent outing of racism and anti-Semitism. at least we know that it's not a mythology anymore. There's no post-racism period, you know? But if we think in that kind of mind, which I believe is a form of denial, what do we do in the consulting room? when clients are bringing it to us. I mean, I feel sometimes I'm so sick of racism that I don't want to hear any more about it. You know, I, do, I just don't. I want a break, you know, I, I wish it would go away, get out of my life and divorce from it, you know. And I go to the Caribbean and I see the impact of slavery and indentured labor there. So even going to a, a predominantly black, and Asian space, it's still there. You cannot escape, it's there. We might as well face it and deal with it. So that's what I call denial, fear, and fear. And lots of, there are lots of assumptions that are made about facing racism and how we face it and how we work with it or not. I think denial and fear are the main concerns that underlie not working with it. So we get afraid and we go into denial Denial is a form of silence, a secret supported by an unconscious intention to withhold, usually due to fear of humiliation and persecution. Anyone ever experienced that? Has anyone ever experienced that? <laughs> Don't be afraid to say so, because this is a place where we're going to share, share experiences. You know, I've been silent. You know, because it's painful. Because I've got other things to deal with. Because I don't need that on top of what I'm already dealing with. But it's there. And you can bet your life in every group where someone has experienced racism, there le- will at least be one ally. I always try to remember that. Because it can be a lonely place and scary place. And I have experienced that. You know, sometimes presenting at a conference where I felt, actually, eyes are on me and I'm being attacked as one, as the one black presenter who's saying stuff that people don't really want to hear. And, and then someone, a, a, a white person will talk, and, or a black person will talk, or an Asian person will talk. And I feel, there's my ally. There's my ally. On the other hand, afterwards sometimes people have come up to me and said I'm so glad you said that and I said but why didn't you say it you see so the silence is kind of like a bit of a germ really it spreads Um, but if at least if you remember there's at least one ally in the room and one voice can open it up it means really that we're not alone so shame or sharam and humiliation play a key role in those being impacted by racism and those wanting to challenge it and work with it. And there are many layers of what the shame is about. Sometimes it's to do with, you know, feeling inadequate about addressing it. Sometimes it's about <clears throat> experiencing it but feeling you can't say because you'll be shamed or you won't be, be- believed, etc. And so it becomes a kind of a stigma, really. You know, it's a, sti- a stigmatised oppression, racism, because it's the one that has least been discussed in the field of psychotherapy and counselling and the caring professions. And that's what has upheld the continuing denial and silence about racism, that people feel they can't because Perhaps they don't feel that they've had enough experience to talk, or perhaps, perhaps they might feel they're raising the race card, if you like. And so, there are many angles to this. But I always like to use this um, comment from Jill Tuckwell. She talks about what has happened to when there is silence in this profession concerning racism. And clients, and I've seen students leave, you know, um, because they felt persecuted. They've just disappeared, black students have disappeared because of feeling persecuted on their training. Um, Clients can leave, you know, or not come, because they don't feel that what's being taught in a traditional sense is enough to facilitate their process, their life history, and the experience of racism that they've had. Um, So, and she says another response is not to enter in the first place, which is the loudest silence of all. Interesting that a silence can be loud. Well, I call this gagging, this silence where we can't talk, where we can't say, where we feel like we can't, the words are there, but we can't let them out. That's a very painful image here from the movie Beloved. It just says it all. But I believe there's a kind of psychological gagging that goes on that prevents us feeling we can have an open dialogue about racism and how to work with it in a therapeutic context and the impact that it has on the psyche, and the psyche of the perpetrators and the psyche of those subjected to it. I had to come a long way to accept that white people are also hurt by racism, because if they weren't hurting, how could they hurt? How could they have hurt us? How could they have felt that we didn't have feelings about what they were doing? They must have been hurt to do that, because no one's born with that in them. So I had to come a long way to stop being angry and accept that that is a fact. That's a fact of life. And from there, I had to develop compassion. What's also been silenced is the beauty and the power of our peoples. And um, the greatness of African and Asian heritage. There's so many amazing features of our heritage in this world, that quite often we forget to celebrate because we're beaten down by the negative aspects of being a person of color. Maintaining silence creates taboos. Oh yes, black rage. Black rage is a concept that I've given to rage that occurs as a result of racism. I've named it because it's a specific kind of rage that creates fear in the observer and sometimes fear in the individual who feels the rage. And that's often the point where we get labeled or stereotyped. It's such an urgent cause for us that we're seen as not being quite right. I remember when I started to use the term black, my daughters were sort of teenagers at the time, and they came to me very sheepishly and they said, because I was at university at that point, and they came sheepishly and they said, Mum, we've got something to say to you. I said, okay, what? (laughs) You say what a lot then. And they said, something's wrong with you. (laughs) You're not the same mum that we had. You keep talking about being black and I had gone through some form of transition whilst I was at university, doing some research about my black heritage. And they, I was unrecognizable to them because perhaps before then I didn't talk about being black and I didn't talk about my Jewish heritage. You know, I didn't talk about me. I didn't have an identity actually, um, except for the names I was called in school, like half-caste and the racist names that I was called, because my skin was brown. So they were going through that transition with me, but as adults now, I think at least one of them calls herself black. <laughs> at least one, that's half. that's half. That's half of my two daughters. <laughs> um, so, and I ha- also have two sons and they see themselves as black. So that's three quarters of my family. I've got. A quarter to work on. (laughs) But, um, hey, we all are at our own levels. Yes. And in whatever way we're working on this, um, it's really important to remember that people are at different levels. They've had different experiences. They've started in different places. Their awareness has happened at certain points in their life. And depending on what levels of support they may have had or not had, they may feel quite vulnerable and shaky, or they may feel quite courageous and powerful to address these issues. Um, And, you know, I had no mercy when I first started doing anti-racist training, back there in the early 90s. I had no mercy, because if people didn't acknowledge that racism existed, then I had no time for them. You know, and it was quite harsh and brutal way of thinking, but that's what rage does, often does to us. We can't think... You know, we stereotype people and, you know, can't even see the diversity between us, which, which is often about different levels of, you know, experience. Oh, this was a, a woman that I interviewed, an Asian woman that I interviewed um, for, I think it was for book two. And um, she said, this is a stereotype that she's experienced. People say Asian women are quiet, shy and submissive. And she said, it's not because I'm Asian that I'm quiet. That is my individual personality. You see how easy stereotypes are come. And this came about because she felt that she wasn't heard when she was challenging racism because she wasn't shouting. Um, But then she noticed that um, if a black woman was quiet, she was being seen as just a gentle black lady, not passive and submissive. But most of us know and understand and experience that. If a black woman is angry and seem to be angry, she's seen as aggressive, aggressive black woman. Lots of clients that I see say that, that they, they don't say anything because of that stereotype. So what are they piling down inside themselves when they can't feel they can say anything? We need rooms where we can scream and shout about it, you know, and roll around and rage and, and beat up a white bag bean bag or something. <laughs> Sorry, but, you know, that this needs to happen. It's just like women need to beat up a, a man in the room, you know, when they're do- dealing with their sexism. Not a real man, just to, you know, just something that they can get these feelings out. Um, so these stereotypes come about, and it's just not fair. Um, but it is important to notice that they influence our work. Um, she says you know, having eggs thrown at your door and dogs set on you, being called packies. Her parents grew up in the times of the National Front when all this was going on. And it's going on in different ways now still. She says, there's going to be residues of that happening now in different forms and at varying levels, whether conscious or unconscious. But, she says, if I feel safe, I will bring this up. And she said, she brought it up once in her supervision and she was told you're being hard on yourself. And she's very sympathetic. She said it was a caring response, but she also felt dismissed. She felt that what she had actually said about the experience was not acknowledged. And so she plucked up the courage to tell the supervisor that she felt it was dismissive. Well done. It took me, I think a year to tell my white supervisor that I felt she was trying to control my sessions by interpreting everything I said and not allowing me to express my own style. Um, So she was, uh, uh, you know, I commend her for this. And she said the supervisor apologized and and acknowledged that she was judging her. And her self-worth improved after that. So, If that had been ignored, she would have carried that into the room with the clients, yeah? Until she was able to walk through it and feel fully supported by the supervisor, both in her own experience, in her own ethnicity, and when she's in the room with clients and whatever has happened to her as an Asian woman gets re-stimulated. Very important. And I see that as supervisors actively engaging with racism. So there's three examples here. I'm not going to spend too much time on them because I want us to have a break and then a discussion. The top one, P, worked with a white supervisee who'd had little contact with black people and her reporting on a black client was unusually negative. She picked it up. So I'll just go to what happened. She discussed the impact of racist stereotypes with the supervisee, resulting in realizing her naivety and becoming more empathic. She found that after doing that, the supervisee started to become more empathic. So she used an educational approach. denoticed noticed the stereotyping of black children in the school that she, she was working in. And she said, I struggled to assert myself and speak confidently. She had a pile of internalised racism. She was experiencing her own internalised racism and that was stopping her from discussing with the staff what she felt these children had been going through because it's a bit non-confidential when you're working in schools. But then she had a role there that she could play in um, assisting the institution to review the racism in the institution. That was impacting the children. So, in noticing her low self esteem and the impact of institutional racism and powerlessness, this enabled a decision from her to find her voice and use the support to empower herself as a professional. And this was because she brought it to the supervision group that I was running, that she was in. You know, she was afraid to say something, but she knew it was m- impacting the children that she was working with. Um, we encouraged her to find her voice. And she eventually was able to raise it in the school. And it enhanced the work that she was doing because then you have everyone working on the impact of racism. So I used this term, I introduced this, this term, recognition trauma in the first book and it's in the second book as well. And recognition trauma is the powerful feelings that are raised when someone becomes aware of the impact of racism on them. So it could be fear, it could be rage, could be denial, that's a powerful feeling. Um, And this, in the groups that I was working with when I was doing the research originally, I noticed that white people had powerful feelings around the awareness of racism. The black students and the Asian students had their own powerful feelings about the impact of racism. And once that awareness came into the room, the feelings were also valid. And so I used the term recognition trauma, which means when someone becomes aware and they they experience they begin to experience powerful feelings. And what I'd done was I looked at clients' depressive. and just kind of reinterpreted that in saying that you can work through recognition trauma, like you can work through a depressive phase if you have enough support and recognition. So I think that was one of the terminologies that you liked the most, Eugene, when you first read my book. (laughs) Yeah. Voicing the unbearable. And what support do you have or do you need to develop confidence in this area. It's, I was gonna say it's simple. It's simple and it's not simple. It requires you to voice it, to become aware, to voice the impact of racism, to be prepared to untangle and process internalized racism and internalized oppression, and the impact of other oppressions, the multidimensional impact of, of all oppressions and work integratively with the traditional approaches that we're often taught, we must stick to and not be flexible with. The most liberating thing for me was coming out of my training organization and deciding that I was gonna make it my own because it actually did not include my experience as a black woman. And so I came out of there feeling quite hurt about being dismissed, but that was the moment I decided I was gonna to start to do training in this area. And I offered it to the organization that I was training in once I was not no longer a student there. So that was how it worked for me, like the woman who put the sign up outside her shop. Another one of my concepts is called a black empathic approach. And to do that, you need to develop an appropriate gaze. In other words, a reflection that specifically supports the information that the client and the therapist is experiencing around the impact of racism. So I think I said earlier that the asian supervisee felt dismissed because the therapist said to her you're being hard on yourself okay that was an important observation that she was not acknowledging what the supervisee was saying about the impact of racism on herself and her family without that acknowledgement the gaze is inappropriate an appropriate gaze is to respond specifically to what the client or the supervisee is saying about their experience of racism. And so the black empathic approach is born out of this. The black empathic approach responds specifically and sensitively to the client's racial and cultural experiences as they express them. And as the therapist intuitively recognizes them as an element of identity and psychology. It does, in, it does affect the mind. It does affect the body. It does affect the spirit. But if we, if we just mm-hmm, act as though we haven't heard the details of it, it's not a black empathic approach. Questions that have come to me about this approach have been, like people have said, um, Well, I do show empathy. No, it's a core component of my work. We all show empathy, you know. and, And I say, but what empathy do you show specifically when someone is talking about the impact of racism or they're not talking about it and you know that you suspect, you intuit that it's there. Are you saying that sounds like racism to me? Or are you saying, well, do you think... Are you telling me that it's happened because of the colour of your skin? Sometimes clients won't name it because we're used to living in a society where there's a lot of denial around racism. But now it's being talked about in Parliament. For me, it feels like the first time in my life I've heard the word racism mentioned in Parliament. It was thrown out there by David Lammy, you know. And thank you, David Lammy, you found your voice, you know. So it's like, um, that's, to me, responding specifically to that experience, responding specifically to the racial component of the Windrush situation is a black, empathic approach, yeah. And so I advocate that it's not just an empathic approach it's a black empathic approach and one other thing that's come out of this with some of my supervisees they feel enraged they feel like campaigning once they begin to hear about the racism with their clients you know and it's yeah come on let's get them you know <laughs> and but then i say if you're campaigning are you being empathic you have to consider whether you're being empathic, what the the response is and how you can specifically offer this approach and expect it to to be supported in supervision and in um, support forums for our work. So I leave you with a couple of questions. Are you allowed to be upset about racism in your training? your personal development or supervision and how do you take action on this so it does not remain hidden thank
0: you That was Dr. Aisha Mackenzie movinga talking about the hidden and voiced impact of racism in therapeutic relationships. If you want to know more about doctor Mackenzie McKenzie-Movinga's concepts around engaging with oppression in practice and supervision, she is running a training in London on the 2nd and 3rd of June 2018. To find out more about Barton or Aisha's training, please visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk. Whilst you're there, you can leave your thoughts on the Barton podcast page. I hope you can join me for the next podcast, where Nazello Nube-Mlilo will be talking about a narrative therapeutic approach she co-developed called The Tree of Life, a culturally sensitive approach to working with trauma. Until then, goodbye.